0: When Vivian Schiller signed on as a senior executive at Twitter in 2013, she was excited to be joining a company that seemed poised to remake the world. It was a heady time for the social media startup. Just a few years earlier, it had been messages on Twitter that connected democracy activists throughout the Middle East, leading to a revolutionary moment known as the Arab Spring. But Schiller soon became disillusioned and has long since left the company. In the years since, Twitter was increasingly hijacked by purveyors of hate and disinformation, fouling democracy instead of spreading it. Now, billionaire Elon Musk has taken over Twitter, fired half its workforce, and signaled plans to revise, if not roll back, the content moderation policies that led the company to kick Donald Trump off the platform for spreading election lies. We'll talk to Schiller about what we should make of the Musk takeover and what it portends for the future of Twitter, social media, and American democracy on this episode of Skullduggery. All right. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God.
1: So help me God. 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 God.
0: I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News.
2: I'm
1: Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News.
2: And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a Senior Counsel at States United.
0: So the other day, uh, right after Musk had taken over Twitter, I'm uh, walking the dog and have my head buried in my iPhone, reading all about what Musk is doing uh, to the company and the threats to its content moderation policies. And some uh, elderly gentleman comes up to me and says, get your head out of your phone, take in the environment, look at the trees. And um, look, he was right. You know, we all spend too much time scrolling through Twitter and th- this is, uh, we should be getting our heads off our phone. That said, Twitter clearly plays an outsized role in our political dialogue. So the idea that this eccentric billionaire, Elon Musk, can run the company as he wishes and influence what Americans see and read and how they get their news is, I think, Trump on its face. And, you know, put on top of that, Musk's start in which he, A, retweets some crazy conspiracy theory about the Paul Pelosi attack and signals he plans to have Donald Trump back on the platform. Although it's, you know, he's saying we're going to establish our new content moderation guidelines first. Uh, All of that has huge implications for all of us.
1: Well, well, now we have a title uh, for the podcast. What's that? Smell the roses, Isakoff. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but um, Look at you the know... trees
0: smell the roses, <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. so you know, we're we're like four days away from, you know these very consequential midterm elections, and uh, everyone's obsessed with politics right now uh, the one story that's you know really breaking through is Elon Musk buying Twitter that's partly because people are fascinated by Elon Musk and his m- mercurial personality it's partly because people are obsessed with uh, Twitter and many people including many of our colleagues and probably some of our listeners are addicted to Twitter. But it's also directly relevant uh, to the election uh, because of the outsized influence uh, that Twitter has, because of the dangers of uh, disinformation and voter intimidation, and because of the fundamental questions that Twitter and Twitter's problems and social media's problems more generally pose to our democracy. So um, it deserves to break through. And um, I'm gl- very glad uh, that we're going to be having this conversation today with uh, Vivian Schiller, who is a, a high-ranking executive there and, and, and is very thoughtful about these issues and, uh, and how important they are.
2: I think one of, to me at least, one of the really interesting things about this is that in the past, Elon Musk has operated in to a certain degree a much more constrained space he's been running a space exploration company and an automobile company he has stepped into an arena that i think he doesn't fully understand and the and He is beginning to get buffeted by forces that I think he never fully expected and possibly isn't prepared to deal with. Twitter is fundamentally, and at the end of the day, uh, an organization that is ruled by law and that is ruled by perception and that it is ruled by its millions of users. And Musk, to the extent that he thinks he can actually control or dictate the fate of that product or the fate of its economics, is probably going to find out he's sadly mistaken. He's already the subject of a major class action lawsuit because of the way he fired all of these people. He's potentially the subject of a federal investigation regarding who his second largest investor is. A Saudi billionaire, just to Point that out. Yes. He's
1: got advertiser revolts.
2: He's got advertiser revolts, and he's got a user-based revolt. And the thing he needs to remember is that his users are his actual product. In stark contrast to rockets and cars where he can control the product and make the product, he can't do that at all with Twitter. And I think he's in for a sharp awakening and maybe an unpleasant look at his bank account uh, in the not-too-distant future.
0: Well, that would be interesting and who's going to do that? Take a look at his bank account. Are we talking through litigation, lawsuits or, you know, some well, kind of governmental I mean intervention, investigation.
1: Some of it is just out there. I mean, he's 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 taken on 13 billion dollars in debt in this acquisition and he he has to to service service that debt. You know, he's going to be paying a billion dollars a year, which is more than twitter earns. So, you know, just to Victoria's point, I mean, just just financially, just on that basis alone, he's got um uh, he may have bitten off more uh, yeah. than he can chew. And and the point is, yes, he is a very successful businessman. He's the wealthiest man in the world. But just to um emphasize Victoria's point, media is a very very different business.
2: And to answer your point, uh Mike, government maybe but this guy's in hock up to his eyeballs to banks and those banks those banks have covenants and they very are very very carefully looking at their investment and at their uh, at, at what musk is doing with it so he's got to he's got to hit his covenants and when right. he doesn't well, it. be fascinating to see
0: i am just you know from a larger perspective historians uh, turn of the century would talk about the outsized influence of the uh, press barons the William yellow Randolph. press Hearst and joseph pulitzer look at today look to the extent to which we have not evolved at all rupert murdoch jeff bezos mark zuckerberg elon musk billionaires all of them having a really outsized significant role in determining how we get our news and what news we read and i think that on its face ought to be um, a troubling issue for all of us but anyway we've got a uh, great guest to talk about all this uh vivian schiller a former twitter executive herself so let's get to it All right. We now have with us Vivian Schiller. She was once the chief of uh, global news at Twitter. She's also been uh, the president and CEO of NPR, uh, general manager of the New York Times, uh, chief digital officer of NBC News. So fair to say she is steeped in the news business. Uh, Vivian, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you. Thanks so much. Glad to be back. So you were at Twitter in its relatively early stages, 2013, 14, if I remember correctly. You've long since left, but you've, like all of us, you've been watching Elon Musk's uh, takeover and the turmoil within Twitter. Now, how concerned are you uh, with what Musk seems to be doing at Twitter?
3: Very concerned, for a whole bunch of reasons starting with the fact that there doesn't seem to be a plan a strategy that i have heard it seems to keep shifting hour to hour so i don't know what's going to happen to twitter as a business i'm concerned because they have fired not all but a huge number of people that looked out for the integrity of the content on twitter and i'm concerned because even though i left twitter long ago I'm still a heavy Twitter user and it's incredibly valuable to me and I feel like it has the potential to either turn into a trash heap or go away entirely. So, yeah, lots of problems here. Let me ask you uh
1: follow up on just on the firings, Vivian, uh because at least as of the time we are recording this podcast on Saturday, that's the latest uh big news and you know basically in a number of hours Musk fired half the workforce. It was a appears to have been a totally chaotic process with people getting fired in the middle of the night, people getting locked out of their email, but not their Slack. Which is Slack, how they found out, yeah. Which is how they found out. There was a crazy story about, you know, there was a, some product meeting where people were, it was a video conference where people were calling in. One person on the call just disappeared because at that moment they'd been locked out of the t- Twitter system. So I'm just, I'm just curious, what does the way this happened, tell you at all about Elon Musk and how he might run this company. The, there was a professor of management at Harvard who said that uh, she called it a masterclass in not how to do this. And some might argue that you know you, you got to pull the Band-Aid off if you had to do this to get Twitter on a uh, viable you know financial path that you, you might as well do it quickly. But I'm curious what your thoughts are about how this went down.
3: Well, there's quick and then there's just complete and utter madness, which is, you know, what appears to have happened. Look, he owns the joint now. He can do whatever he wants. And so, I mean, he had sort of telegraphed that he was going to fire a bunch of people. So that part is not a surprise. But and I suppose, you know, it's not a surprise that it was handled so chaotically. I'm just concerned that based on the kinds of categories of people, well, just by the sheer numbers. I mean, it, it inevitably he's going to, uh, you know, lose a lot of people who make sure that the site can basically stay online, is protected from outside cyber attacks, is protected from content influence campaigns, where is protected from, you know, the kind of garbage that sadly is part of human nature and you know people would like to you know inflict on on twitter users so i don't know look the guy he's the rich you know he's the richest man in the world right and he's built a couple of successful businesses but there sure doesn't seem to be much of a strategy here that i can discern
1: and just one really quick follow up it's just the what he's been saying is he had to do this twitter's losing 4 million dollars a day and it's because of these Activists oh,
3: come out on. there,
1: uh, you know, who who are scaring off the advertisers. I mean, <laughs> that's bullshit, right?
3: He's scaring off the advertisers. The activists were trying to tell him what he needs to do to protect the site. Then he threatened um, to name and shame the advertisers who are no longer advertising. Boy, that's a real way to win hearts and minds of the people that you know keep your lights on.
2: Let me step back for a moment and contextualize Twitter's importance. Only, and only is actually probably uh, not the right word, but only about twenty-five percent of Americans used Twitter, and only a subportion of them use Twitter for purposes of the news. So, all of us on this podcast are probably uh, slightly Twitter addicted and use it for a lot of our jobs, but. Why should the average American, most of whom are not on Twitter, care about what happens to this platform?
3: Look, the people that are listening to this podcast right now, in which we're talking about Twitter, is exactly why Twitter punches above its weight in terms of the reach and influence that it has. Journalists are all on Twitter. So journalists then use Twitter, whether they should or shouldn't, that's a whole other topic for another day in their reporting. And so it is, and you know, heads of state use Twitter, titans of corporate industry use Twitter, whether they'll continue to as a whole other story. So it has tremendous influence beyond just the people who happen to be on Twitter all day, like all of us. And there's nothing like Twitter. There is no other platform that is public and real-time communication platform.
2: Now. In the midst of all of the turmoil that's been going on on Twitter, there have been a lot of people who've been leaving or saying that they're leaving. And there are a fair number of people who are kind of pumping up alternative platforms to Twitter. You hear about I think Mastodon is one of them. Yeah. Um, I, I hear that Jack Dorsey, who's one of the former CEOs of Twitter, is starting up his own kind of new, new Jack Twitter. Dorsey
3: is the one who pushed pushed uh, Musk to buy Twitter.
2: Uh, so, so there is no alternative. Is that your that there's, there is? There uh, is no
3: alternative today. There is no alternative today.
0: So I should have, uh, in the introduction, mentioned your current position. Thank you. I, I was going to bring it up. <laughs> yeah. You are chief of uh, Aspen Digital and executive director of Aspen Digital. And I gather one of the issues you deal with, which you're part of the Aspen uh, Institute, is the whole question of the role of social media companies and how they have both contributed to democratic dialogue, uh, at least that was the original conception of Twitter and others, and, you know, how they have been degraded by hate speech and conspiracy theories. And, and, you know, look, uh, Musk started off on a bad foot on the content moderation uh, side of the equation. First, he retweets some wild conspiracy theory about the attack on Paul Pelosi, and then you know, in a 12-hour period right after his takeover, it was pointed out that there was like a 500% increase in the use of the N-word, something that should disturb everybody. On the other hand, there is a question, you know, outstanding about content moderation and whether there can be any real rules that could be guideposts for social media companies like Twitter and whether there's any role for the government at all in dictating what information, not dictating or influencing what information we see. How do you navigate that larger issue of content moderation in an age of conspiracy theories and hate speech and preserve the First Amendment?
3: Yeah, carefully and imperfectly. You know, Look, I can't think of any platform that has gotten content moderation entirely right. I don't even know that it's possible, but it requires diligence and vigilance to what you're seeing happening on your platform online. I'm saying if you work in content moderation, it requires judgment and flexibility. It cannot be automated and you will never get it perfectly right, but you can just keep trying to move as close as you can to good enough. So, you know, the thing is on on Twitter, pre-Musk, there were plenty of issues. I mean, Musk was right. There's a bot problem. There's hate speech on Twitter. There were attempts, most of which have been thwarted at, at sort of coordinated, you know, to thwart coordinated, you know, mis- and disinformation campaigns. Twitter, I think, was one of the best and the most thoughtful on these issues, even though there was a lot of problems. And I will say that the guy who is now running trust and safety at Twitter, because the his bosses were all fired, whose name is Yoel Roth, is still there, and at least uh, as of this recording at this moment on Saturday morning at 11, 16 a.m. Eastern, Musk seems to like him and is basically on Twitter telling everybody to listen to this guy. And I know Yoel, and he is a person of utmost integrity. So that is sort of the small comfort that I'm hanging on to right now. But content moderation is is really, really, really difficult. The role of the government, oh man, no.
1: <laughs> yeah. Just a quick follow-up just on that, which is that, I mean, if you look at kind of the legal landscape, you've got challenges to Section 320 is it Section three twenty? Section I always do that. You got challenges to Section two thirty, which immunizes the platform. Our dyslexic, uh, yeah, 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 which immunizes the platform from liability for you know content that appears on their sites, right? And then you've got you've got challenges to the moderation of content in states like Texas and Florida. So Mike was talking about you know how you you know navigate all that. How do you situate Musk on the continuum between those two things? <laughs>
3: I don't know. I mean, I don't know because he hasn't told us. I mean, he says that he's for free speech, which has turned into a completely empty term that appears to mean whatever the person uttering those words wants it to mean. So we really don't know. So, you know, and it's going to be, I I mean, if he doesn't know already, he's going to quickly learn. There is no such thing as As a site with no content moderation, it certainly won't last long because that's where you're going to get his, you know, his hated bots. You're going to get hate speech. You're going to get spam. You're going to get, you know, solicitations for all kinds of garbage. You're going to get porn. It's just going to be, you can't run a business that way. So, so far
2: Musk has managed to turn off most of the advertisers on Twitter and s- severely restrict or se- severely kind of uh, limit- mean alienated. alienated. Alien- <laughs> I, okay, I just
3: to be clear about you.
2: And so severely impacted the, the incoming revenue of Twitter over the course of at least the next year, probably. He has fired so many people that he's imperiled the product quality. Is Twitter on life support right now?
3: How long does it actually have? You know, I think we'll know a lot. Next week with the midterms, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't. I don't want to just you know, I it, try to make make up an answer to that. I really don't know. I mean, it hasn't. Don't forget, most people only got fired yesterday, so I've seen those same reports about increases in the use of the N word, et cetera. But I haven't seen. You know, we haven't really seen any other Musk impact on Twitter yet. I will say that I feel like the energy on Twitter has gone. This is just my experience. It's not you know a quantitative. <laughs> not based on quantitative data, but I feel like people are a little quieter on Twitter right now. So you do actually believe that he can turn it around? No, I have no idea. I mean, he has not given us any any plan. He says he wants to try to reduce bots. Actually, that would be a great thing, although some bots are fine. You know, just starting with labeling bots would be a great thing. He says he wants to find ways for Twitter to make more money, which, um, you know, all the previous CEOs have basically failed to do. And it's possible there is not a way for that Twitter just, you know, that there's not revenue streams that nobody's thought of. Musk thinks he's going to do it by charging people $8 a month to be verified, which don't forget verification is intended to signal that the person tweeting is who they say they are. It is, some people perceive it as a status symbol. That's not its intention. So by selling verification as if it's a status symbol, the people like us, I'm not going to, I'm verified because I'm a journalist and I'm not going to pay eight dollars a month. But yet, people who are frauds can pay eight dollars a month, so it's going to become meaningless. It's like the Starbelly sneeches,
0: yeah. And it seems to me it totally defeats the purpose of the blue check mark. I think if he doesn't understand buy it. I mean, it's like, yeah, the house keeping seal of approval, you run an ad in the magazine, you get one or something. I am fascinated by the evolution of Twitter over the years. You were there in 2013, 14, sort of the aftermath of the Arab Spring and there was uh, you know a, a great deal of excitement about Twitter that it, was. it could uh, you know spread democracy throughout the world and then you know over time things changed quite dramatically give me a sense of the the arc of this and I assume when you were there you shared you know much of the enthusiasm about the, right, the, the right. positive role Twitter could play um, pro-democracy role when did it start to change and why?
3: Well there's two concurrent sets of issues. Yes, when I joined Twitter it was there was a great deal of excitement about Twitter and its positive role in the world and I shared that excitement which was why I was so excited to go be part of that and to grow that positive influence in the world. So that's why I joined I joined Twitter. but the problems that at, at Twitter there are two different, Issues that have sort of collided and woven together over the years that have been problematic for Twitter. One is, and you know, this has been well documented, including by, you know, the early or early days, Nick Bilton's fantastic book, Hatching Twitter. Twitter has always been plagued by, by management issues. It is a platform that the creators created something, and I think they didn't. I mean, it was brilliant, but I think they didn't even understand the way people would use it. And the users of Twitter turned it into that force. And it was always sort of like the leaders of Twitter kind of chase the followers and figure out how to keep up. And they did in many ways, but it has always had management difficulties. And now, you know, we see this playing out. I, th- as I understand it, it was pretty chaotic place internally when I was there, which is one of the reasons that I left. It was very hard. To get things done. I understand from people that stayed, it got a little bit better during some of the Jack Dorsey years. Um, and now now we see where we Dorsey are. Dorsey
0: always seemed to be kind of a weird dude. Tell us about your own experiences I don't, with him.
3: I didn't work with him. He was not CEO um, when I was there. Anyway, I didn't stay. I, I'm not going <laughs> to. So that So one trajectory has been sort of the internal dynamics of Twitter and and also having you know, legitimate difficulty figuring out how to monetize it without destroying what Twitter is, which I I don't know the answer to that either. so I have incredible sympathy with that dilemma. The second issue is is the world. And in 2014, you know, before I left the issues that were percolating up, there was a little bit of bots, but there was some some abuse and some hate speech, and that was a huge game of whack-a-mole as content moderation practices were really getting up to speed. But after that, as, you know, as we now know, well, the sort of, you know, mis- and disinformation industrial complex really kicked in, you know, in the years leading up to the 2016 elections, and it's only gotten worse. And now we have, you know, an incredibly polarized society, societies all over the world. What's the cause and effects is a story for another podcast. Uh, so now you've got a situation where Twitter, uh, where it's just hard to be, um, Twitter in a world where you're trying to keep it as a healthy platform that does good in the world, in given all of the chaos of the last eight years. So those two things together have become real, I think, have brought us where we are today.
1: Vivian, you were talking about Twitter and the world. A little bit before in the conversation, you talked about Twitter and free speech. And what does Elon Musk really mean by free speech? I'm going to connect these two things because the majority of Twitter users today are actually overseas in uh, international markets. And it seems to me that Elon Musk has a very kind of sort of almost US-centric view of speech issues, very much rooted in uh, our politics today. So it's about cancel culture and the like, and the idea that people on the right are being being silenced. But overseas speech is threatened on a daily basis uh, by dictators and, you know, illiberal regimes. And I saw recently that uh, I think that the Turkish courts ordered that Tweets be taken down uh, because uh, they were critical of, of the uh, the leader of Turkey, uh, Recep Erdogan. I wonder how you think uh, Elon Musk will handle the issue of dissidents. And I know this is something that Issakov—he's got a line of questioning on on this. But uh, any sense of of uh, how this all will play uh, globally?
3: Well, if if Musk doesn't realize it yet, he's certainly going to learn very quickly that he's going to have to comply. With the laws of the countries that he's operating in, and every country has their limits on speech. So some of it, you know, in in, in Germany, there's a lot of restrictions around having to do with, understandably, around speech and support of, you know, Nazis. And then you have with you know with good intentions, obviously, but then you have, like you said, the autocrats who are trying to control the kind of information about themselves. And so, you know, what's going to happen with Twitter is, I mean, and this is the way every platform operates is they try to do the best they can. And in the end, they have to make a choice. Are they going to operate in the country complying with laws or rules they disagree with, or are they going to pull out? And so I guess we will see how his free speech all the time doctrine, how that works out when he's up against laws and rigid illiberal autocrats.
0: I've got a few uh, questions along those lines because it relates to, I think, one of the more alarming aspects of the new regime. And that is the role of the Saudis now this is something that you had some direct experience with as I recall a few years ago the FBI busted a Saudi espionage plot within Twitter to steal personal data from the Twitter accounts of Saudi dissidents and provide them to Saudi intelligence services for the purpose of harassing or worse to uh, uh, those dissidents and guy, I believe you worked with one of those guys who was yeah. a, a Saudi spy, uh, Ahmed Abuama, or yeah, was the guy. He was recently convicted in federal court yeah. of yeah. spying for the Saudis in exchange for hundreds of thousands of dollars from MBS's personal secretary. And as we reported a year ago, MBS himself actually boasted about how we did that. We had our guy at Twitter. So the FBI bust the plot. They convict Abu Amma, a guy you worked with when you were at Twitter. And now we learn that the number, that the second largest shareholder in Twitter is Prince Al-Walid of Saudi Arabia, billionaire investor, a guy who was um, imprisoned by MBS at the Ritz-Carlton a couple of years ago, emerges, uh, you know, months later, gaunt. Chastened and does MBS's bidding, sells shares in his company to the uh, Saudi uh, sovereign wealth fund. It seems like the Saudis got what they wanted, you know, from the get go. Now with a, a substantial corporate interest in Twitter itself,
3: yeah, it's pretty troubling. You know, Ahmed, I did work with him. Lovely guy. Enjoyed working with him. Needless to say, wouldn't had not in a million years could have imagined that he was using the in, internal systems, the open internal systems, to supply the Saudis with the registration information of, you know, personal data from Saudi dissidents. It's horrifying. The systems have been more locked down since then. It was pretty much the wild west then. Yeah. So now here we are again, and. You raise a good question, which is what are they getting for that investment other than potentially return on that investment that I'm sure Elon is hoping to deliver? I would like to believe, <laughs> maybe naively so, that um, they will not have access. But if I were somebody I didn't want the Saudis to have personal information about, I might not, I might take some actions right now.
2: Well what could a government like Saudi Arabia or a a Saudi actor who owns a substantial stake in Twitter actually do with it that would be damaging? I mean there there're plenty of ways of structuring a corporate ownership transaction that wouldn't leave that owner with, you know, kind of any access to particularly oh, I valuable information.
3: I, and I I I would have to imagine that that was the case. I I I would have to imagine that uh, there's not a clause in their agreement that they can, you know, see the personal personal data of t- of Twitter users. So well, that's exactly uh, what
0: the Saudis were doing in their in, no, well, their it was. But they, yeah. but they
3: but they had to recruit these inside individuals. So yeah, I don't. I mean, I think it's going to be a while before, if you know, for dissidents or others who are operating anonymously. I would probably caution them about their continued use of Twitter and take a look at the kind of information they provided, you know, cell phone numbers, et cetera, when they logged in and maybe quit the platform, honestly.
2: Do you think there ought to be a U.S. government review of this? I mean, there there's a, an increasing call uh, amongst some senators and and for Hill investigations into this, or for CFIUS, which is the main kind of executive branch agency that reviews foreign transactions like this. Is is yeah. that something you think ought to get yeah. going? I
3: don't, I don't. Yeah, I don't. I'm. I that's a little out of my lane. So I, I'm. I'm sure they're they're taking a look.
2: Senator
0: Chris Murphy, who we had on the podcast a couple weeks ago talking about the Saudis, has called for a uh, CFIUS review of yeah. the uh, Saudi role in Twitter. But I just want to take you back to when we were talking about content moderation before. And I, you know, you said it's uh, <laughs> this is a, a tricky issue, to say the least. But you said there's no role for the government at all in this. And I don't know if you've noticed, but you know the the Intercept uh, published a story this week in which they uh, reported on communications between Department of Homeland Security and various social media platforms about various items that were showing up on Facebook and other social media platforms.
3: They got that story wrong. I would really encourage all your listeners to read Mike Maznick's debunking of that Intercept piece.
0: I did, and he made some some good points. On the other hand, it was clear to me that there was at least discussions among people in the government and the the social media platforms. And I mean, is that they were people at DHS and uh, various arms were alerting social media companies to items that they found troubling or problematic. Isn't that a role that the government was playing? And is that appropriate? It's making recommendations uh, to the Um, companies about about what they should moderate or, in effect, censor.
3: Right. So, CISA, which is part of the DHS, which is the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, which was created in 2018 by President Trump, monitors globally cybersecurity sort of trends, I guess, around the world. And when they see concerning activity, they alert companies. To risks and threats, and that could be across the whole cybersecurity portfolio, including coordinated campaigns to spread, you know, conspiracy theory or propaganda from overseas, et cetera, et cetera. They're not making content. I. They're not making content moderation. They're not telling platforms what content to leave up and what to take down. They're flagging activities that they see as a heads up to those platforms.
0: But Vivian, let me just read you a a section from that Intercept article, and I understand, you know, there are legitimate questions about aspects of it, but one part of it leapt out at me. According to a draft copy of DHS's Quadrennial Homeland Security Review, their report, it it said the department plans to target, quote, inaccurate information On a wide range of topics, including, quote, the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic and the efficacy of COVID-19 vaccines, racial justice, U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and the nature of U.S. support to Ukraine. How is U.S. anything about U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan or the nature of U.S. support to Ukraine within the purview of DHS to be telling social media companies what they should or should not publish?
3: Well, I don't think they are. I don't know. Look, I, let me just tell you, I'm not inside. I can't validate that information. I can either debunk nor validate it. But again, I would encourage you to read Maznick's interpretation of the underlying documents that The Intercept was using. But it is about uh, activity that they're seeing around coordinated mis- and disinformation campaigns. And I am now going into the world of pure speculation. I would imagine some of those are around issues having to do with elections. America's withdrawal from Afghanistan, Afghanistan, et cetera, et cetera. No platform is going to take its direction from the U.S. government. It's just not going to happen. And it's not the way that they work. So I, I, you know, that's that's all I can say. It just doesn't doesn't make sense to me, nor should it be the role of the U.S. government, obviously, to opine or try to uh, not I mean, opine about the specifics of the content, only the origins of the behavior. That's why, for instance, at Facebook, they call it CIB, Coordinated Inauthentic Behavior. There's a group that looks at the behavior of online groups, which is separate from looking at the validity of the content. Those are two separate things.
1: Vivian, I just want to bring the conversation down from the Policy level to the product level for a second here, um, because I think there are people who are curious, Twitter users, are curious about what the Twitter product is going to look like as as time goes on under under Musk. So some of the ideas that, that they talked about is you know direct messaging to VIPs and celebrities, um, videos behind paywalls, which. I get the feeling might mostly be porn. And then, you know, bringing back Vine, these, you know, short videos on a loop for young people. And then there's the idea of the um, sort of the everything app, the equivalent of China's uh, WeChat, uh, where you could, you know, get your Ubers, you could order food, order on Amazon, you know, whatever it is just in this on this one app. What's your sense of where things are going in terms of the product?
3: Look, it's this is this is like the the first batters walking up to the plate at the top of the first inning here. It's impossible to know. I've heard all that, all of that speculation. I didn't hear the one about DMing celebrities uh, and paying for that service. I'm sure that celebrities would be super excited about that. Um, look, you know, actually, I mean, here, I'm not going to, Twitter doesn't make, you know, Twitter's got a revenue problem. And so the way to figure out what revenue opportunities are is to experiment. So, you know, I don't have any particular criticism for trying different things, I suppose. You know, my ardent personal desire is that they don't mess with the core Twitter product other than making content moderation improvements. But it's, you know, he bought the toy, so he gets to do whatever he wants with it now. And he's right that Twitter has not cracked the code up to this point on trying to figure out a way to have, you know, the kind of revenue growth that certainly the street demanded all goes to the street now is not relevant in the picture.
1: But it's not realistic that he can like or is it that he could, you know, significantly reduce his dependency on advertising as the main driver of and if he can, isn't that a problem in terms I, of like not yeah. you know, it, isn't the pressure from advertisers and it used to be from stockholders until he took it private? Isn't that isn't that a check on his his power?
3: Uh, I don't know about that. I think uh, advertisers Many advertisers will flock towards solutions that support whatever it is they're trying to market. So And, and
1: by the way, so there was a piece in the New York Times uh, op-ed page today which made the point that uh, advertisers are a significant part of the problem in the sense that you know they prioritize you know engagement and engagement is often about emotion and anger and that's you know kind of and, and that is what drives the algorithms and that's part of the root of the problem here anyway. <laughs>
3: Yeah. Also, don't forget that generally speaking, when we're talking about advertising on social media, it's not just what people automatically think of as soap commercials. Advertising is basically an advertiser is anybody who pays to amplify and spread a message to specific targeted audiences. So that can be a shampoo commercial, but it can also be an individual who has an unreliable piece of content they want to get in front of certain eyeballs. So, yeah, yeah. so first of all, we need to think, just be careful with, I mean, just we need to be not be careful, but be precise about what we mean by advertisers. I don't really judge Musk for experimenting with various new forms of revenue. Like I said, I would like it not to be at the expense of the main timeline, uh, you know, the main news feed on Twitter, and, and hopefully it won't help that turn, you know, that won't turn that into into a garbage site. But look, he's got to experiment. I get that. I don't I don't I don't judge there. Just to uh, wrap up, uh, I'd like to sort of take a step
0: back. And, you know, we've all been talking about uh, various threats to our democracy and with the coming election. What does it say about the state of our democracy and political culture that an eccentric billionaire can control what a substantial portion of the you know american public sees and mm-hmm. control the news that it sees and reads yeah.
3: yeah it's it's a huge problem i'm trying to think of a word bigger than that it's a monumental issue and it's this is not just about twitter we've looked at the uh, i mean much more substantial also in the control effectively even though it's a publicly traded company of a single individual which is Facebook now meta, you know, it is well documented the impact, the negative impact that Facebook has had, you know, being a spark for, you know, for genocide, for conspiracy theories, for the polarization of America. You know, Twitter at least is generally speaking, not algorithmically filtered in that same way. And it's, and it's public, so, yeah, this is a big, you know, this is why we at Aspen and so many organizations and governments, frankly, too, around the world are trying to figure out what are the ways that we can, you know, put the, no, I, don't, I I was going to say put the genie back in the bottle, but I don't want, there's no such thing as the good old days. You know, people go, oh, if only we were back to the days of Walter Cronkite. That was a problematic era because of all the people that were left out of that narrative. So let's not do that. But to find a way to ensure that quality information is available to people at the local, regional, national, and global level. And, you know, we're, we're not going to, we're going to die trying. There's no simple answers, but there's a lot of small solutions and things that can help. It's a big problem.
0: Well, good that you are trying, because (laughs) somebody's got to. Um, In any case, uh, Vivian, I want to thank you for a really interesting discussion. And, um, you know, we will see uh, what becomes of Twitter and perhaps, you know, the future of American democracy in in coming weeks. Thanks a lot.
3: Yeah, thank you. Enjoy being with you.